mean that is uh, the personal interaction that we have with individuals uh, as we share the gospel with them. It's one of the most frightening things we do. I think uh, many of us uh, have developed an aversion to it uh, just playing out of fear, thinking that uh, we are in sales selling something uh, that no one would want or need, which is not true at all. Uh, actually, it is sharing the truth about that which is most important to us and most important to them. It's news they need to hear. And we see in the examples of our Lord found in chapters 3 and 4 of John of him working with specific individuals. Uh, in chapter 3, uh, Nicodemus came to him. In chapter 4, uh, he happens upon uh, the woman at the well. Nicodemus uh, was very well respected, very well educated, was a very moral person. Uh, she is not moral, not respected, uh, not well educated. Uh, Nicodemus had a wonderful uh, theology regarding the Old Testament. Uh, she has bad theology regarding the truth of how to relate to God. But one thing they both have in common is they are lost. And they need to learn of their lost state and need to know the truth as to how to be saved. And you notice that Jesus is both kind uh, and also forcefully truthful in correcting their misunderstandings about the gospel. That's sometimes where uh, we in our culture have been taught uh, to be milk toast. Uh, we've been taught... Uh, just to agree as much as we possibly can, be as nice as we possibly can. And if they ask us questions, just say, well, uh, here is what I believe, as opposed to what you see Jesus doing, in which he is willing to mix it up a little bit with both Nicodemus and the woman uh, to explain to them what the truth is. There's no reason why we should be backing down and saying this is not true. What we should be willing to do is kindly, gently, truthfully convey to them what is needed to be heard. In both cases, we are cooperating with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're not the person who does salvation. The Holy Spirit is the one uh, that enlightens them and causes them uh, to be able to believe and come to faith in Jesus Christ. So let's look then at the Gospel of John, chapter 4, uh, Jesus' interview uh, with the woman at the well. John, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Jesus knew that his public ministry needed to last three years. And at times, the situation in Jerusalem uh, became too hot, meaning that they were getting uh, too close uh, to wanting to execute him too soon. And he was on a timetable of human history uh, designed in advance uh, by God the Father. And he was doing the Father's will. So at times, he went off into what we would consider a fairly rural area up to the province of Galilee where uh, his parents were from and where uh, he grew up. Most commonly Jews, when they went from the south uh, to the north, 
uh, bypassed Samaria. If you think of Judea in the south, Samaria is in the middle, and Galilee is up on top. Most would cross the Jordan River, go through Perea, and then up into uh, Galilee. Uh, but you notice the text says, according to the, the Gospel of John, but he needed to go through Samaria. Quite an interesting uh, discussion. That's a shorter route, uh, but that's not the reason uh, that he went that route. It is quite obvious he has intentions to take the Gospel to the Samaritans. Now, the reason why Jews would not have been interested in taking the gospel to the Samaritans is because they didn't like Samaritans. So it's an interesting phenomenon among us is that we only want to be friends with the kind of people that we want as friends. Uh, we only want to invite to church the kind of people that we'd want to be in church with us. We are selective in the kind of people we're willing to deal with. Uh, we uh, are, in a sense, filtering who it is we'll talk to. But you know that Jesus, rather controversially, was willing to go to sinners, willing to eat with sinners, uh, willing to interact with sinful people that the Pharisees said we would have nothing to do with and suggested that Jesus was tainting himself in some way by dealing with them. And I think it teaches us to be far less discriminatory as to the kind of people we work with and to have a much bigger heart for all people, even more difficult people to reach, even people that don't believe what we believe or uh, people who... Uh, culturally are, are harder to reach, or perhaps even have a language barrier or some sort of so socioeconomic barrier. You might say, well, what was the problem between the Jews and the Samaritans? Both the southern tribes of uh, Judah and the northern tribes of Israel uh, fell into sin, into idol worship, and God had promised when he'd given them the law, if you disobey me and go after idols, I'll have you carried away into captivity. And so the southern tribes were taken into Babylon, the northern tribes were taken into Assyria, and both lived in captivity. Uh, you may remember uh, Daniel was one of those taken into the Babylonian captivity. The northern tribes in the Assyrian captivity intermarried with the Assyrians and adopted some of their religious beliefs. So by the time the captivity was over and they were turned back into the northern areas, there was a subsection of them, the Samaritans, who had formed an aberrant variation of the Old Testament faith of the Jews in which they only held to the Pentateuch and held some other strange beliefs that caused the Jews to say that they were a bunch of half-breeds and that they did not believe the truth of the Old Testament scriptures. Hence, they believed that these people were unclean, not to be touched, not to be dealt with at all, and they just wanted to ignore them. But you notice that several times in the gospel, Jesus brings in a Samaritan as a hero in the story and says such things as, notice, no Israelite would do this. Notice no healing like this happens with the Israelites. It only happens with the Samaritans. And the most famous of our stories, perhaps one of our most beloved stories, is that of the so-called Good Samaritan, in which religious Jews passed by the injured man 
And it was only the Samaritan who was willing to help. This should teach us much about our own personal prejudices and our unwillingness to share the gospel with difficult people to reach or people that we might say I don't like or people that we might think in some way are unworthy for us to share. It's very important that John says to us he needed to go through Samaria. And the reason is he wanted to meet Samaritans and wanted to tell them the truth as to how to be saved. Verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. This would be noon if we were counting time according to the Synoptic Gospels, but there are many reasons why we think in John that he's following Roman time, which means uh, it'd be the same time that we use uh, today, which would mean 6 p.m. in the evening, which makes sense. That would be uh, where it's starting to get cooler and it's not as difficult to go and to draw from water. We're not absolutely positive, but it seems from the evidence that we see in John that he uses Roman time. Perhaps it's the evening hour. I also want you to notice that Jesus being a real, true human being who can completely relate to us because he is like us as a human being, yet without sin, grew tired. So if you grow tired sometime, that's okay. You might say, like, what's wrong with me? I'm tired. Well, maybe you're not getting enough sleep. Maybe you've been working hard. Maybe there's a reason why you're weary. You'll notice that there are times when Jesus sends the disciples away. He needs private time. He'll go up on a mountain and pray by himself. That's okay. There are times to recharge your batteries, in a sense, times to regain uh, spiritual direction, times to uh, recover. And so Jesus says, uh, let's stop here. I'm going to sit here by this well. And the disciples uh, decide to go on into town and to get some food for them and plan to come back out and meet Jesus. So Jesus is by himself sitting by this famous well, and a woman of Samaria came out to draw water. She's apparently not from the town of Sychar, or as it probably would have said uh, that she was from there, but she is from the region there of <coughs> Samaria. <clears throat> She's by herself. Uh, which is unusual. Normally, when ladies go out uh, to draw water from wells, they go out uh, with a group, and they socialize the whole way. It's much more enjoyable to do uh, less than interesting tasks if you have people along. You can have nice conversation, nice fellowship. Uh, the fact that she's by herself uh, would cause us uh, some interest to say, is she the kind of lady that the other ladies wouldn't want to be around? Is that why she has to be out here uh, by herself? Strangely, surprisingly, Jesus speaks to her. Uh, normally, it's a little uh, beyond custom for a man uh, and a woman out there by themselves uh, to, to have a conversation with each other. Uh, it just uh, might be something in which politely you would just not uh, talk to each other. It was also very true that Jesus being a Jew and she being a Samaritan, uh, all the more reason would not be speaking to her. And then when Jesus asks her, uh, and in fact, uh, rather forcefully says, give me a drink, uh, it's absolutely astounding. 
because they believed uh, that Samaritan women were, in a sense, continually menstruating so that they were always unclean. And to touch something that they touched, uh, such as a device used to drink from, would make yourself ceremonially unclean. But you can tell that Jesus is not worried about this at all. In fact, he wants to reach her, and he is not nervous about these kinds of protocols, and he wants to have a conversation with her. So he says, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The woman of Samaria said to him, basically protesting, uh, saying, uh, you're shocking me, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? I mean, you can just count them up on, on your fingers as to how startling this whole thing is, is I'm not the kind of person you should be speaking to, nor the kind of person you should be asking water from. And yet there is not going to be a conversation. There's going to be no opportunity to explain the way of salvation unless he talks to her. But you notice the way in which he approaches her is related to that which she's doing. He's aware of why she is there. And truly, he's tired and thirsty. And he would like a drink. And so it works in both ways. Some of us are very gregarious people. And if we're sitting next to someone in a plane, we'll greet them, we'll talk to them, we'll talk about why are you traveling, we'll talk about where are you from, we'll talk about how is your family, we'll get into long conversations. And I've had many a conversation with people on a plane. Same thing sitting in a waiting room somewhere. Uh, you're all just sitting there doing nothing. Uh, and sometimes it's uh, very enjoyable to strike up a conversation. Others of us as introverts say, I don't want anyone to even notice me. I'm going to be invisible. I'm going to keep my nose in a book. I'm going to avert my eyes. I will not let anyone even notice I've even noticed them. I will pretend they can't see me and I'll have no conversation with anyone. Friends, that's not helpful. That doesn't allow us to share the gospel. Some of the most surprising conversations I've had with the gospel were started by the other person who was more gregarious than me and who was willing to strike up a conversation with me. And I found the conversation very enjoyable and I actually shared the gospel. It's good for us to talk to people. In fact, it's good for us to look for opportunities to talk to people. My wife loves to shop. If that was uh, the second most uh, favorite thing to do, uh, if she had nothing else to do, I think the most favorite thing is if I take her out to dinner. I think the second most favorite thing is let's go shopping. One of the funny things that happens when we're out shopping with her is people will go up to her and ask her opinion on a particular article of clothing. They'll, they'll show it to her and they'll say, what do you think? Do you think this would look good on me? And I'm thinking like, why you? You don't work here. Sometimes I'm even wearing the right uniform for Target. I am in there with a, a red polo and uh, khaki pants, and I, I look like I work there. No one asks my opinion. No one strikes up conversations with me and says, you know, where's the dog food or something like that. No, but they come up to her. We need to have a face that says yes. We need to have a face that is warm and welcoming, a, a way in which people want to talk to us, a way in which people, when they make eye contact with us, they see a smile from us and they say, 
there's a safe person to talk to. There's a person I would be willing to talk to so that people will converse with us. So Jesus asks her, give me a drink. And she is astounded as to why he would even speak to her. And so he needs to create curiosity in her in order to continue the conversation, or else this conversation is going to shut down right away. Uh, when I was younger, I had a friend who was with Open Air Campaigners. Uh, he worked full-time uh, as an evangelist, and uh, often he would go to uh, the piers on the beach and uh, go on a night in which uh, huge crowds would be out there. I'd go out with him. He'd have a paint board and all that, and I would be in the crowd, and uh, we would listen to the story told, and then I would uh, seek to counsel people who would have interest. One of the things he told me is they will politely listen to you for maybe 60 seconds or so, maybe only 30 seconds. You have to use that first 30 seconds, 60 seconds to create enough interest that they'll give you five minutes. Now, if you think about that for a moment, it makes perfect sense. So they'll, they'll talk to you briefly, but if they lose interest, you don't have time to actually explain the gospel to them. And so you don't get right into the gospel, but you create interest. In fact, Jesus even spoke of us being salt. A salt can, can preserve, a salt can protect, but a salt can also cause thirst. And you'll notice that the next thing Jesus says is so provocative, so interesting, so mysterious, that she wants to talk to him. And she wants to have this conversation. He says a very interesting statement. If you knew the gift of God, so there's a gift in this. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink. So now there's two mysteries. What is the gift you're offering and who in the world are you? You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Notice the subject matter that Jesus is conversing with her in both of the statements so far is water. Why water? Because she's out there to draw water. In other words, he's talking what's on her mind right now. I love to read. I love to uh, be curious about a lot of things. And I know a ton of information skin deep. So if you go very deep with me, you'll find out like, he doesn't know a lot about that. But he knows a little bit about that. And I can fool you for the first paragraph or so just to get a conversation going. Because I'm interested in a wide range of things. It would be helpful if we were curious enough about what people do and what interests them. That if we began about a paragraph-long conversation, we could create enough interest that the people would want to continue the conversation. And the conversation could switch to something else, but now they're interested enough to have a conversation with us. What is this gift? Who is this man? What is living water? Now, on uh, the most basic concept, what they mean by living water is running water, uh, the kind of water that if you saw it in a brook or a stream, you'd actually be willing to put your canteen down into it and refill it and drink from that water. It looks like fresh, flowing water. This well, the one of the deepest, oldest wells in the entire region, a, a famous well, 
uh, has water, but it doesn't have running water. But Jesus doesn't mean living water in the sense of running water. He means it in a spiritual sense, and we haven't learned that yet. We're still just talking water. But she's curious. What is water? What is the gift? And who is this man? A friend of mine who was president of Biola University for 25 years was famous in our circles as the president of our university, uh, but was not uh, well-known nationwide. He traveled often, and he told me a story in which, uh, he, because he traveled often enough, he was in first class. They'll bump you up if you're a very good customer. And so he was sitting in first class, and a person he did not recognize came into the plane to sit down next to him. The flight attendants were making over this person as if this person was very important. And he sat down next to my friend, the president, and, and he was looking at each other. Neither one recognized each other. But as the rest of the passengers on the plane boarded, uh, they passed this man, and many of them, with a startled glance, were surprised to recognize this person sitting next to him. And it really bothered him that it seemed like everybody in the plane knew who he was, but he didn't. So he waited until uh, they took off and they were leveling off at uh, cruising altitude and he turned to this apparent important stranger next to him and he says, he's a very comical guy, he says, do you know who I am? <laughs> and the apparently famous guy says, no. And he goes, well, I don't know who you are either. When he arrived at his destination and got off and his son uh, greeted him, uh, his son said to him, Dad, how can you not recognize Geraldo Rivera? He's on those, those uh, TV shows on, on the news. He's, he's famous for all kinds of uh, crazy ideas on the news channels. Dad, how would you not know Geraldo Rivera? But it is an interesting thing if you create interest in saying, who is this person who says these things? He's so surprising to me. Being an interesting person to talk to is helpful. And sometimes it's just being yourself. Uh, often when we uh, are nervous and afraid to talk to people, we, we become someone we're not, and we become awkward and stilted. And it'd be much better if we were just normal and calm and having a, a regular conversation. Uh, so, having said this, she's now interested enough, and she says in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Ah, so she's interested. She's wondering, there, you don't have any baggage, you don't have anything with you, you don't have anything to, to draw water with, you're offering me living water, which I'd really enjoy. Where are you going to get it? And then... As if she is a little nervous that he may think himself better than her. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob, the famous Jacob, the, the father of the Jewish nation, who, uh, or one of the fathers after Abraham, and, and one that they would consider their father as well, who gave us this well and drank from it itself and also his sons and his livestock? 
are you better than Jacob? Who are you? Well, Jesus is going to keep this going for a while, so they get into a deeper conversation. And so he rather mysteriously, again, is speaking to her in a way in which he is slowly revealing her more and more of what he's actually talking about, which is not water, but that water is a symbol or a picture or a metaphor of the Holy Spirit's work. He says, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, after she bragged how great uh, this well was. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into eternal life. This is just John 4, but in John 7, he has an entire uh, teaching section on the ministry of the Spirit likened to a stream of living water within us that is constantly fresh and constantly renewing and constantly invigorating, that the Spirit enlivens us and makes, it capable, makes us capable of relating to God and serving Him. She's ready to buy. She wants this. And she says, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst. And then she explains how she's completely misunderstood him nor come here to draw. So she wants what he's offering, but she is thinking in physical terms. But he's drawn her in now to the point where he can explain to her in much more detail what it is that he's offering. But there's a huge problem in the way in which we present the gospel, and that is they don't, need the, they don't know they need to be saved until they know they're lost. And so she has to come to grips with the sin that separates her from God. And often we are afraid to bring that part up because we think it causes offense. Actually, folks, people know that they're corrupt. People know that they've even violated their own personal moral standards and their own conscience. They know that. And so it's not all that surprising. Some will push back and, and you know, say, I'm better than the average person, but they will know that they have violated God's law, they have violated their conscience, they've violated their own moral standards, they're even disappointed in themselves. And so he changes subject completely at this point and says, go call your husband and come here. In other words, I want to talk to both of you at the same time. But there's a problem about the husband thing because... She has no husband right now, and she has had a lot of men in her life, and it's an embarrassment to her, and it's rather awkward that this stranger is asking her to open herself up at her most vulnerable point. Well, she decides to be honest with him. She says, I can't go get my husband because I don't have one. He says to her, you well said, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. And that you spoke truthfully. Way back at the end of chapter 2, John explained that Jesus didn't need anyone to tell him what is in man, because he knows already what is in man. He knows everything about us. On the one hand, he is living life as a human being, as a real human being, with all the 
difficulties that we face as human beings, even temptation. On the other hand, he still possesses the attributes of deity and only uses them by permission from the Father. Uh, so, for example, he holds back the knowledge of when he'll return, but the Father does reveal to him things that uh, he needs to know, such as the one who's going to betray him, or in this case, uh, the history of this woman's marital relationships. This then opens her up to say, how could he possibly know this? If he knows this, he must know everything about me. She jumps to the conclusion he's a prophet. So she says to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Then she decides to theologically debate with him. He must be a Jewish prophet. And frankly, I disagree with the Jewish prophets because our religion is superior to their religion. And she says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. What's really interesting is when a teacher says, nope, you're both wrong. Because he says, frankly, that's not the most important question. Verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is from the Jews. And he means this literally, that the Messiah is Jewish, and God has picked the Jewish people as the means of reaching those around him. He says the hour is coming, future, and now is, in the sense that the king is already on the scene offering the kingdom, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers, notice that delimiter, true, meaning that there are people that worship inaccurately, and reach the wrong destination. But when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. And the reason why you must relate to Him human spirit to Holy Spirit is because God is unlike us in this regard. He is spirit. Notice He says in verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And though I've lived uh, a long time in the Midwest, I actually grew up in Upland uh, on 15th and Euclid, and our home phone number was one digit off the snow report for Mount Baldy. So whenever there was a major snowstorm and people wanted to know, is there enough snow to ski? Because Baldy's filled with rocks and you actually need quite a bit of snow to be able to ski. They would call the snow report. And if they weren't careful how they dialed, they reached me. I would answer the phone and they would ask for the snow report. I'd say, just a sec, let me look out the window. I'd go look out the window because out the window we had a clear view of Baldy. I would say, there's lots of snow. It looks beautiful. Come on up. And they didn't realize that they were talking to the wrong person. We understand that about phone numbers very easily, but we don't understand that about worship very easily. Because people can say, I'm talking to Jesus. In fact, people come to my door witnessing for false cults, talking about 
Jesus, and I'll tell you, the Jesus that they believe in is not the Jesus of the Bible. In fact, Jesus warned us that there would be many antichrists, many false religions, many pretenders, and the person that they want me to believe in is the wrong Jesus. And so it's absolutely crucial that if we're to be truly saved, that we find the true Jesus, the only one who can save us, the only way to the Father. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So dial correctly. Make sure you are reaching the right person. He says you need to be a true worshiper who reaches the heavenly Father. You need, through your spirit, to commune with the Holy Spirit that you can receive through relationship with me, and you need to reach the Father in truth. You need to approach him as the Father has explained himself to you, and not as your people have crafted their own religion. At this point, uh, she's unwilling to argue with him any longer, and she says, I'm just going to wait until the Messiah comes. And when the Messiah comes, I'll ask him. You ever notice that happens when you uh, are having a difficult conversation about theology with someone and, and you'll just say, well, when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jesus. And that seems to end the conversation right there. That's what she's trying to do, shut down the conversation. She's basically saying, I'll wait until the Messiah comes. He's coming, the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all these things. He'll tell us what the truth is. And then comes the whammer. Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Wow. So often you wonder, who is it that I'm talking to? Who is this that I'm having a conversation with? We want to create enough interest that people can listen long enough in order to hear the truth. And we have to be truthful about the truth. Let's not beat around the bush. Let's be true with them. But let's tell them that the gospel is God's offer of grace to those who will turn from their sins and from clinging to their ability to save themselves and instead cast themselves completely on Jesus Christ, realizing I cannot save myself, only he can save me. He is the one who took my place, paid for my sins, died on the cross in my place. I believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son, my Savior. I don't know if this has happened to you, but it happens to me often that at a crucial point in a conversation, there's a major interruption. Has that ever happened to you? Where you say, like, the timing is amazing. Right at this crucial moment, they interrupt. Verse 27, at this point, his disciples came and interrupted them and saying, what in the world is he doing talking to a woman? And yet they're thinking, what do you seek? Why are you talking with her? The woman then takes the opportunity to skedazzle. She jumps up, leaves her water pot behind, and goes her way into the city. Now, it looks like that he may have actually lost her, 
but she is doing just exactly what he wants her to do. He says, go get your husband, come back, we'll talk about this together. She, astounded that he knows everything about her, goes to the men in the city and says, come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. So many of us say, well, I can't explain the gospel to people because I'm sure they'll ask me a question that I don't know. There are questions that people can ask that none of us could answer. There are very hard questions where we'd say, sometimes we can say, I don't know, I'll have to research that and get back to you. Or sometimes we'll say, like, I don't think we'll ever know that until we go to heaven and we can ask him ourselves. Uh, that's a very, very hard question. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk to other people about the Lord Jesus Christ. If we say we'll wait until we're so knowledgeable that we'll have the answer to all the questions someone may ask, we'll excuse ourselves until the Lord returns. Here is a woman who knows nothing. Here is a woman who we're not even sure is saved yet. But here is a woman who says, come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Some of our most effective evangelists are brand new Christians who don't even know anything. In John 9, he heals a man born blind. This man doesn't even know who it is that healed him. And so when the Pharisees are after him and saying, you can't give glory to that man, you must give glory to God, the man says, here's the funniest thing. He healed me. I don't know a lot, but I know one thing. I was blind, and now I see. In fact, he gives it back to the Pharisees, saying like, and you aren't interested in who this man is? And you're criticizing this man? He made it possible for me to see. In our culture, as culture has changed, it's gotten to the point now where some of the most effective ways of personal work, and what we mean by this is talking to people evangelistically, is to relate to them your own personal story. And that's unique to you and to me. Our personal stories are so unique that no one else can own that. We can tell people what God has done for us. We can tell people our spiritual journey, and we can testify that God has given us forgiveness of sins and peace and relationship with God. And now when we pray, he answers our prayers. Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. And then she says, could this be the Christ? Could this be the Messiah? Well, she's created interest. And out they go in droves. Huge numbers of people come out from the city of Sychar out to Jacob's well to see the person that might be the Christ. Verse 31. In the meantime, his disciples urge him, saying, Rabbi, eat. My wife says this to me often. She says, just because you, didn't, just because you did the work doesn't mean I have to receive it right now. So if I've gone and done something, and I've tried to come and present it to her, she's saying, now is not the moment. She may be doing the laundry, she may be ironing, she may be making dinner, and I'm trying to show her something, give her something, present something to her, and she says, hold on, now is not the moment. The disciples are interrupting Jesus 
from a very important thing. They left him behind because he was so tired. They went into town to get food. They've come back with the food. They're irritated that he's talking to this woman, and they're just interested in saying, eat. And he says, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Still rather mysterious, and they say like, wait a second, does somebody else bring him food? I thought we were supposed to go get him food. How is it that he has food? And he explains. He's saying, basically, he's being empowered by the Holy Spirit so that even though he's tired, he can still go on explaining the gospel to someone because it's that important, and the moment is important. It's crucial for us to be cooperating with the Holy Spirit's convicting ministry to be active, whether it's late at night and we're tired, whether we just wish we could continue this to the next day, where we're saying, like, surely there'll be more time. There may not be more time. And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So spiritual work is more important than physical food. Have you ever thought the times that you skipped a meal, it was probably because you were so busy doing something else, you didn't even have time to stop and eat. And that's what's happening with Jesus. He is so into the moment that he doesn't need food right now. He has work to do, and his work is far more important than something as simple as physically eating. If you think about it, we will stop everything we're doing three times a day, perhaps, if you still eat breakfast. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner will pause everything we're doing and we'll sit down and relax and have a meal. And Jesus is saying, sometimes there are things that are so important we need to do it now, whether or not it's lunchtime, whether or not it's dinner time, whether or not it's convenient for other people around us, this is important business. And he uses an analogy of harvest time. He says, there's a saying, there are still four months and then comes the harvest, which sounds kind of strange, but he's saying that when you plant the crop, there's not a whole lot you can do between the sowing of the seed and the harvesting of the crop. Now, you may do a few things like weeding it, or you may uh, try uh, to make sure that uh, the, the water running through it is not creating ruts that aren't helpful to the crop. You might do some small things, but basically you're waiting for the crop to mature so you can harvest it. And so there's this lag time. And he's saying, interestingly, there's a time at which you plant the gospel and a time at which you harvest the gospel. A time when you sow it, the time when you reap it. I, I meant to say reap, not harvest, but, but I think you know what I mean by the time of the harvest. Scholars who have interviewed people who have come to Christ these days in America will say, on average, a person will say they'd heard the gospel about 15 times before they responded and became a believer. That's interesting, isn't it? Because that means one person will share, another person will share, another person will share, another person will share, and it may take a number of times of hearing the gospel before a person comes to faith in Christ. And that's perfectly fine. And Jesus is saying to them here, you're part of this process, and someone else has planted a seed here, but you watch. God is granting you the privilege of harvesting this crop. 
There are four months and then the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. As the grain grows up, it eventually grows a head, and the head is white in color compared to the amber color of the stalk. And so when you look out on a field ready to be harvested, the field, rather than being amber in color, is white in color because of the head of the grain. Interestingly, Samaritans wore white clothing. In droves, they're coming out from Sychar based on the woman's testimony, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And here they come. And the disciples are thinking about, let's eat. And Jesus is saying, turn around and look. Here they come. Let's harvest. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. And this is something that humbles us. Sometimes we say, I led so-and-so to the Lord. There could be 15 of us in line who can say, I was part of sharing the gospel with that person. For this is a true saying, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with him. He stayed there two more days, and many more believed because of his word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this indeed is is the Christ, that's the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. Oh, may we be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit to allow God to work in us, to cooperate with Him in gratitude for what He has done for us, in making conversation with people and helping them come to hear the truth of the gospel. May we allow the Spirit to be with us. Sometimes when I call my daughter, she doesn't answer. And I call her back and I say, I left you a message. You didn't answer, you didn't call back. She says the most amazing thing. She says, Dad, I was present in the moment with my kids. I said, you're doing the right thing. You're doing the right thing. You don't need to call me back. We need to be present in the moment with the people that God places in our paths. Oh, Father, we come before you and ask that you would teach us from your word and allow us to be those disciples who are willing to share the gospel with others. I pray uh, that you would embolden us to have good quality conversations with others and give us the joy being able to help people believe. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.